Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to the Pre-Hospital Podcast. Alright, thanks everyone, welcome back to episode 7. Today I'm speaking to my friend Lance Gray, um, someone I've met through work, um, and done a bit of work with since. So thanks for coming on Lance. Thanks for having me, it's great to be here and good to have a chat after some technical troubles yesterday hopefully yes <laughs> we will get through i appreciate you coming on mate is it right just for the um listeners to just give a bit of background about yourself um, and your work yeah definitely so i'm laying so uh moved to the uk um about coming on almost five years ago now after doing a double degree in nursing and paramedicine and working as a A&E nurse back in Australia and then decided to take the leap over here. Prior to that, um, I worked uh, kind of in non-clinical slash clinical jobs in healthcare from patient transport to wardsmen. So I've always had an interest in healthcare for, well, it's been 12 years now. <laughs> Yeah, nice. Quite quite some experience then. And um, so the the nursing paramedic thing is an interesting one to talk about because it's not something that I'm aware of that happens in the UK. Um, but obviously, with the the way um, kind of medical practice is going, there's a lot of interdisciplinary working, and I think the the lines are getting kind of blurred in terms of paramedics working in hospital and work, nurses working pre-hospitally. So it seems like a good combination. Can you just give us a bit of a background about that education pathway? Yeah, so um, the double degree in nursing and paramedicine, four years, um, coming out with both the Bachelor of Nursing and Bachelor of Paramedicine, um, doing both units with uh, students taking under just the single degree, um, although at my university there was no single paramedicine, it was only the double degree, and then also um, just the single nursing degree, uh, which I thought led to some great work and kind of understanding of roles. Um and I think a lot of the people that undertake the double degree tend to do nursing more in kind of um, emergency or ICU or critical care side of things, but then also allows the flexibility to work in the pre-hospital field as well. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Do, do you have interest? Do you have nurses working pre-hospitally in Australia? You know, I'm not 100% sure off the top of my head. Um, I don't believe so other than kind of community nursing, rapid response nursing, similar to the UK. Yeah, okay. um, oh, actually, no, I do. Um, there is flight nurses. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, was, yeah, I know New South Wales Ambulance has um, flight nurses and Royal Flying Doctor Service uh, have flight nurses. Uh, it's been a number of years since I've worked there, so I've yeah, yeah, a fair. lot of those things. <laughs> no, it seems like a good pathway, doesn't it? And like I say, that kind of joint um, learning is, is, I imagine, quite beneficial to, to those roles, especially, like you say, if you're working in an emergency department as a nurse and um, to have that understanding of the um, patient journey before they arrive to you and you said you worked did you work in A&E for a bit as a nurse before coming over here yeah so when I finished I did my um, graduate year in A&E um, did my emergency nursing um, program which is basically Taylor's moving through the emergency department and gaining up experience in that which was really beneficial I uh, really enjoyed it yeah nice and then you decided to come over to the UK and um I think it'd be interesting. I think some of the listeners are probably, oh, hopefully, kind of international. And I know I've had questions before about um, moving between countries. Um, so our last episode was was about um, was with the Jace, a, a paramedic in America. Um, so I wonder if you could comment on like, why did you decide to come to the UK? What was the process like, and um, was it particularly challenging to to take a qualification um, abroad? Yeah, so I was coming up the end of my emergency nursing program and was keen to kind of take a new challenge and was keen to start my paramedic career as well. Um, in Australia, um, paramedic jobs, especially in graduate areas, are quite difficult to come by. There's quite a kind of over-description of them. Um, so I was applying internally and I had a few friends who worked for London Ambulance Service and they had all um, quite positive experiences enjoying their time over here. So I was applying and looking, um, wasn't super keen on London um, itself. Um, and then I saw uh, Southeast Coast Ambulance applying, uh, um, taking international applicants. So I applied for that. Um, and at the same time, um, I had a job offer with Ambulance Victoria and I was actually due to start with them in four weeks' time. Lindsay <laughs> came, got back to me and offered as well. And my wife and I kind of discussed about what we want to do with our life. And we thought that would give overseas a try and be able to travel a little bit and see this side of the world. Bit of an adventure. So not for the weather. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not for the weather. I have to do say I'm a bit of a cold person though, so I don't mind. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. That, you need to be a rain person, I think, to, um, to spend a lot of time over here. But... That, is, that is very true. It does, it does no, it get sounds, a bit grey. It, it sounds interesting. Um, what, do you have any kind of tips or, or kind of advice for people wanting to make that move in terms of you know, the, kind of, um, the paperwork and everything else that's involved? Because I can't imagine it's an easy process. Um, registration with a with a HCPC and everything else. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think registration is always a bit of a nightmare process, and some people seem to breeze through it, and other people seem to get stopped at every hurdle. But I think my tips would be is uh, kind of look at the services that are hiring and what they offer, and how they're going to support you moving over. Some will offer more than others. Um, a big point is there's more to the UK than just London. So do have a look around. There's some lovely areas and lovely services. A couple other big things that I found difficult when I first moved over was setting up a bank account. 
um, is quite difficult, especially if initially you're living within a hotel as um, bank accounts, uh, banks won't take hotels as residents and you can't get a residence until you have a bank account and it ends up in this awful loop. So try and have friends and family that can support you or just have a real good look into it uh, or maybe even online banking as, a, as an option. Um, another really key point is knowing about tax and student debts and earning money overseas. It's just a good thing to be aware of to how that affects back in your your home country. And then from a kind of taking a degree or a clinical point of view is breaking out of the this is how we used to do it mould, especially if you're going straight from university into your first year of practice. Um, you're going to be very biased the way you've been taught and they are different systems. You know, even though the, the UK and Australia do share a lot of, lot of similarities, there is differences and um, it's really important to be able to kind of adapt and just listen and take advice um, from clinicians and people experienced over here it will challenge your thinking and your mindset yeah and i guess i mean we've spoken about it before haven't we but i guess the one of the biggest differences is that in the australia you have a predominantly paramedic led model is that right whereas in the uk obviously as, as people know um depending on where you work it's quite often that you, you won't be working or you rarely working with another paramedic um in a lot of services and quite often working with someone that's not paramedic trained and, and so you have to take the, the clinical lead is that a fair yeah, definitely. Um, so to my knowledge, all services in Australia are, are paramedic services only. Um, I don't think there's any lower um, grades of staff working in the emergency upside, obviously it's patient transport. Um, and I think coming over here and kind of being thrown out into lead clinician is a very unique challenge and very rewarding at times, but can be very stressful when it is weighing on on you so being able to adapt to that um, has taught me a lot about my own practice and how I think and how I um, kind of risk manage things in my head yeah yeah um, yeah fair and so um, you, you did a year of nursing and then you came over here to be a paramedic did you ever consider coming to the UK to do nursing specifically or do both or why, why did you choose paramedics uh, so I chose the paramedics as um, I was keen to start my paramedic career. I'd done some nursing time as I always wanted to do in my first year out of uni was to kind of build my foundations around nursing. Uh, so I was keen to start my paramedic career and um, a lot of ambulance services at the time were offering quite good packages to, to move over and are paying for fees and that, whereas most of the nursing don't really offer that currently at the moment as they, some agencies will support you in moving over, but the paramedic side just had more, um, more support for moving over. So they kind of decided to do that. Yeah, fair enough. Nice one. Well, cheers for that. Hopefully that kind of helps some of our international listeners. Um, and so I understand, so, you, so obviously we met through work, so you were doing this paramedic job for a while, um, and then I understand you spent a bit of time in education, and then more recently worked as critical care outreach, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So um, after doing some time uh, as a paramedic, I uh, did some sessional lecturing at a university, really enjoyed education, and saw a role uh, for a clinical education facilitator and thought I'd try there my hand at that full time and that was a really rewarding experience to go in and um, kind of try and build courses and educate the you know future clinicians really very rewarding and 
I think the big attraction for education for we for me was the it makes me remember um, yeah, constantly. Yeah. It challenges my thinking. They um, always come up with quite unique questions that you have to think about and go and research yourself and that and really really enjoyable. Then from there was deciding uh, kind of what to do next. You can probably tell that I get. Um, quite bored quite quickly within my roles <laughs> always looking for new things um just kind of deciding what to do next with my career was kind of interested to look at moving back into the uh, hospital area for um, a couple of reasons um and critical care has always been an interest of mine and saw a critical care outreach post and applied for it and was fortunate enough to get the position and moved into that um october last year yeah, nice one. So, so my understanding about critical care outreach from so I did I, I spent a bit of time with them um, during hospital placements for my postgrad, and and the team was predominantly nursing and well, it was all nurses and doctors, doctor led. Um, so, did you apply as a nurse or as a paramedic to to that job? So, applied as a paramedic to that job. So, since I've been in the UK, I haven't registered for my NMC pin. Um, well, I have a reg- I have registered for it, but anyone that goes has been through the NMC overseas process is quite a, a lengthy process and obviously um, quite challenging at times. So I haven't officially registered as a nurse over here, so I applied as a paramedic and um, the team were, were quite um, interested uh, in kind of having a paramedic and also they did enjoy the, the idea of having the double degree with my experience. Yeah, it's interesting. Certainly, probably some good news for some of our listeners. I, I think it's. I, I always like to hear about kind of roles outside the ambulance service. For me, I think kind of as we develop as a profession, the paramedics are, are less and less synonymous with ambulance care, um, and I think that's that's only a good thing for our profession. So it's, it's interesting to to hear that those opportunities are available. Um, for those that don't know too much about uh, critical care outreach, um, can you give us a bit of a background as to, to how the team works and, and what you do? Obviously, you kind of work inside a hospital, but but what's the kind of day-to-day um, setup of that team? Yeah, definitely. So um, biggest thing with uh, kind of critical care outreach is it does vary trust to trust quite a bit. So you mentioned that you were in a doctor-led service um, with a mix of the team. The service I worked for was a primary uh, primary nurse-led service with oversight from a um, ICU consultant. And then uh, they're actually appointing a uh, outreach uh, consultant uh, currently. So within our team, uh, we were built uh, of nurses from ITU, A&E nurses. Uh, In the past, they had physiotherapists also within the team. And uh, our service is a conjoined service, critical care outreach and resuscitation. So we also provide the resuscitation training for the hospital. So BLS, ILS, ALS, and then other kind of courses attached to that. So it was a great mix between education and clinicals. You switch kind of days, day to day and what you're doing. A typical day for Outreach is uh, its primary function is care of ICU patients that are being stepped down onto the wards. So going and reviewing those patients to make sure that they're adjusting to the wards, that they don't have any kind of prolonged critical care effects um, that could lead them to deteriorating and supporting the ward nurses in these patients if they are unwell. 
So for us, we'd probably see pre-COVID, I'd probably have to say. Um, yeah, it's a fair we, differentiation. <laughs> yeah. Um, two to four kind of step downs a day would be around about average. Um, and then we also have our referral service as well. So nurses, um, medical teams, surgical teams on the wards can refer uh, patients to us that are deteriorating or at risk of deterioration. And our goal is to go assess those patients, set up treatment plans that avoid an ICU admission, um, and then refer on to the IC registrars or ICU consultants if um, we think that these patients need um, critical care input. Then from there, if they do require any critical care interventions, we can start them on the wards. So we could start basic inotropes, non-invasive ventilation, all those kind of primary critical care things before the bed is available up on the, uh, up in uh, ICU obviously within the NHS um, ICU capacity is always tightly controlled so being able to provide that on the wards is quite um, quite a good feature. Then also associated with that we have the um, medical emergency and cardiac arrest team as well we act as a member of that um, providing support um, alongside the the medical registrar for, for the take team that day. Yeah, nice. So it sounds like quite a complex job, and um, and certainly. Di so I found, like I say, I spent a bit of time with them in my training, and I found it was really beneficial because for me, it was the kind of closest thing in hospital um, to what we have pre-hospitally with enhanced care teams. Um, so you kind of a specialist nurse and a registrar working together in a, in a kind of two-person team is very similar to the Hems model, and and I found that to be really beneficial in in my in my kind of learning um, as a CCP. Um, so obviously the, the, the patients you're seeing and the kind of the conditions you're presented with are a much higher acuity than um, is standard in ambulance care, I think it's probably fair to say. Um, how did you find that transition to, you know, regular inotropic support and non-invasive ventilation and kind of critical care, intensive care decision making um, from ambulance practice? Yeah, definitely. It was, um, it was a big um jump for myself uh, to kind of move in definitely had some strong kind of imposter syndrome when I'm working alongside um, very very experienced ITU nurses that are very used to doing this and especially when we started running through vent satellite setups and that and they're talking about all these different airway pressures and just stuff that I hadn't been uh, around for since my nursing time and only very limited experience in that as I was in A&E didn't spend any time other than some cover shifts and some placement within intensive care that was um really good and i think as a paramedic the medical emergency cardiac arrest side of things i had no really problem adjusting to was just like being a paramedic except you're just responding to jobs within the hospital or occasionally sometimes around the hospital which was always um good fun to do no blue lights and no blue lights sadly <laughs> And then um, the critical care outreach was a bit more of a challenge, getting my head around blood results and imaging and getting used to giving kind of um, 
treatment plans um, to to other staffs rather than kind of just running my own treatment plan as a paramedic. But uh, as a team, we work together. We normally we have two clinicians on at a time, so you normally bounce your ideas off, and you know you have your ICU reg and your ICU consultant that you can call and have a chat to, um, which was always really really beneficial. Thank. I really enjoyed just being able to. Um, kind of throw around my thoughts with them and and get their input and I think you know with like the CCPs and um having their top cover it's just great to have that kind of support and yes and it's 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 certainly it's useful to have the support in, in terms of patient outcomes but like you say the the learning is is um is just so important because you can have you can have a kind of discussion and, and really it doesn't change your treatment plan or or sometimes you'll discuss something and the consultant will agree with your plan um but like you say taking the time to discuss it really helps you to kind of process it more metacognitively in that kind of type two thinking uh, method and, and really help you reflect on your practice and, and develop so you're nice um i think it'd be interesting to, to talk about cardiac arrest um management which we might come on to in a, in a bit if that's okay i wonder yeah. if um one of the things that interests me about that practice and then coming back to pre-hospital care because i think you're probably in a fairly unique position as a paramedic doing that um, is how does that, you know, that kind of working where you're seeing sick patients and working collaboratively with other, collaboratively with other people, um, and developing um, treatment plans with essentially, I guess it's akin to worsening care advice, isn't it? So you might say try non-invasive ventilation for a couple of hours and call me back, uh, kind of thing. So, so that kind of the risk stratification that you develop there. Um, how have you taken that into your pre-hospital practice? Do you find? Yeah, I think um, it supported my um, pre-hospital practice. I think as paramedics, we do have a, a pretty good um, mindset in how we kind of risk manage things with discharging patients at home and that, and then obviously having the support of PPs or CCPs or GPs to kind of um, deal with that. The biggest things that I took from this job to support my um, pre-hospital practice is just around kind of communication, but also just more knowledge in how patients deteriorate, how our critically unwell patients deteriorate and the typical path they follow within that. So I think that built my knowledge more strongly around that obviously pre-hospital is quite unique. You, you're pretty limited into the knowledge that you can get. You can only get the information and some, some basic OBS, whereas in hospital you have a raft of blood tests and imaging that supports your knowledge as well. Um, being able to follow up on patients is obviously fantastic for your learning as well to see that kind of through. And that's something that pre-hospital hopefully can develop a little bit better better feedback so we can have stronger learning because uh, there can be some quite unique cases that you'll see and if you don't know what the end result was it's hard to learn from them yeah interesting you know you mentioned um complex ventilation strategies and um breath holds and difficult things that that we don't spend a lot of time talking about in paramedic practice and i think it's a decent segue into talking about covid um i don't think we can go through this without discussing that because yeah. uh, your experience I'm sure is, is unique as well in the sense that uh, you kind of took the job just before this pandemic hit and um, so have been kind of not only have you gone in the deep end of a new role um, but really gone in the deep end in a new role in a pandemic that no one really understands so if, if that's all right can you just talk to us a bit about your experience of, of COVID um, in hospital? 
Yeah, definitely. So I think um, the the big a big point that I want to make is that everyone's experience with COVID is very unique and very individual. Um, no one, I think, really experienced it the same. Everyone has their own kind of take on it, and no one saw it worse or saw it better or or whatever really with it. I have friends who worked at the Nightingale and other friends who worked at local hospitals. It was crazy, I think, you know, in, in very little words. Um, I don't think I've fully processed everything that kind of I experienced and saw from February to July. It's it's something that um is something that I, I kind of still think and move through now at the moment. Um, I started a diary uh, back at the right at the start of March um, to kind of just note my feelings and thoughts and kind of what I was seeing at the time. And uh, just the other day, I read back through that. And it was quite unique to see kind of what was happening and how it was progressing. And also my memories of it um, are quite different to what I wrote down as well. So how my brain's kind of changed what I remember and how I experience things, which I think is quite unique and quite interesting. Then from the actual uh, kind of job role point of view, when we first um, kind of started moving towards it, our goal was to increase our critical care capacity. Um, so at, at my hospital, we went from roughly kind of 32 HDU IT beds to over 50 ventilated beds um, using uh, anesthetic machines as to kind of boost our capacity and then putting in treatment plans and escalation plans for these patients. And what I think was quite interesting is the numbers started off as kind of a little bit of a trickle, nothing um, kind of too overwhelming, but then it did rapidly ramp up quite quick. And one of the hardest things was, is we we're trying to create these plans and treatment goals on something that is totally new, even though there was evidence coming out from other countries, it was still very new and people weren't sure of who do we need to escalate to intensive care? Who do we not need to escalate to intensive care? What treatments should we provide? What's gonna be best for these patients? And it was constantly, um, a challenging kind of um, thing. Then from there, once we started having kind of really large numbers, uh, the biggest role that we moved into was a triage team alongside ICU and respiratory um, consultants, basically that we would go and review patients that were kind of considered our most unwell as, um, and to see when we need to move them to critical care because there was always a balance of getting beds available and bed availability while we never were uh, at a point where we couldn't admit to ITU we certainly had delays to try and get people up ensuring our staffing was safe and that we we had um, everything in place for these patients that was always quite a unique challenge then alongside that was just building a um, support network for the ward staff. These patients were critically unwell on typical things that would be admitted to um, to ITU straight away. They're now spending days on the ward in these situations. Um, you know, patients that are on non-rebreathers, 15 litres, um, you know, with PO2s of six and eight, which would normally be admitted to ITU straight away and intubated. But, you know, there was lots of debate and um, 
back and forth about what's going to be best for these patients. So just seeing those ward nurses saying, yes, we understand that this is an extremely difficult time and these patients normally wouldn't be on your ward and just kind of supporting them. There wasn't a great deal that we did for the patients um, other than just kind of reassessing them and, and seeing which ones we need to escalate up to critical care. Yeah, it's, it certainly sounds like, I mean, the psychological burden for, I mean, for you guys, but also for the ward staff dealing with patients that they're not um, kind of experienced and, and trained to deal with is, is a big one, isn't it? And I think it'd be interesting to hear some of your kind of takeaways or, um, you know, learning points that you can then extrapolate to pre-hospital practice. And I think for me, just listening to that, one of them is this this thing of um, uh, oxygen requirements, um, because it's, it's something that I think is, you know, I, I, I learned that in my postgrad, but it's not a diff, it's not a kind of complex thing to wrap your head around. I think it's just maybe I, w- I didn't, maybe it was undertaught during my undergraduate training. But I think this, this awareness of, I think it's useful to have an awareness, certainly in a critical care cases, of, of who's going to be escalated to ITU or who needs to be seen by ITU. And um, certainly when we're considering priority calls and things to hospital. And one of the things you mentioned there is the... A requirement for high flow oxygenation uh, a non-rebreather mask to maintain you know for for you a po2 but f- or you know in hospital a po2 but for us um normal saturations and i think you know that's a kind of easy win isn't it um you can easily underestimate someone needing you know being mildly hypoxic on a high flow mask but actually that's a critical care patient essentially um do you have any other kind of learning points that can easily be applied to pre-hospital care um, certainly, you know, we're going into the second wave, we're probably going to see more kind of respiratory patients. And it's useful to to kind of have these lessons to apply to the pre-hostile cases. Yeah, definitely. So I think um, one of the biggest things is PPE. So, you know, not becoming complacent with our PPE and ensuring that we use everything that we need to, we need to protect ourselves. So, um, you know, I think within the ambulance world, you'll be seeing patients at quite highly infectious times especially early early along in their illness if they're concerned or nervous about you know having a positive result um, they may be calling ambulances slightly earlier before they need hospital admission but you'll be seeing them at that time so PPE is very vitally important um, I'm sure you keep up to date with kind of that the biggest thing is assessment of these patients you know keep it simple it's still abc you know a really good respiratory assessment of these patients will kind of highlight the ones that aren't doing well um and uh continue that throughout your kind of treatment plan uh deterioration time typically seven to 12 days post the onset of symptoms is typically when we saw patients doing the worst. So if they're in that kind of window and they have an increase, um, you know, if they have an oxygen requirement, if they have an increased work of breathing, then hospital assessment, I think, is super important for these patients and have quite a low threshold to bring them in so they can have some basic um, observations and, and imaging and that done to see if they are developing, you know, possibly worse worsening or, you know, kind of COVID pneumonia. Then uh, if you're thinking about kind of the critical unwell patient uh, that we see, we can think about giving them high flow um, oxygen, think about giving them high flow alongside with nasal oxygenation as well to kind of boost your flow rate for them. Um, And then transport of these patients. um, If you're doing any kind of transport, especially the ventilated COVID patient, it's a a slow and steady transport because they become incredibly unstable unstable on movement and um, can rapidly 
kind of deteriorate, especially their oxygen status. And then um, with with you know the possibility of a second wave, um, thinking about not just getting transfixed on just COVID. Remember that there's still going to be other conditions out there. There's still going to be your standard PEs, your MIs, your COPDs, your asthmas. Dare I say it, your sepsis patients as well. Um, so thinking about that. And then I think have a good look into post-COVID complica uh, complications. There seems to be more and more evidence that there's some lasting effects or worse effects. And then especially in the, the pediatric population, there is certainly some rare um, rare complications they can have. Yeah, and I think the, the last two points you make almost kind of combine, don't they? Because like you say, there's this kind of anchoring bias that you can get where we're in this pandemic and it's, it's um, so kind of ubiquitous, this disease process or is thought to be. Um, and even more so in the ambulance service, I think, because we rarely get follow-up to know whether patients were or were not COVID positive. Um, so you can get this anchoring bias and kind of prematurely close on a diagnosis of COVID. Um, and like you say, neglect to do a full workup for PE or, or other causes of shortness of breath. And I think that's further complicated by the changing... Um, uh, kind of paradigm around those cases because like you say post-covid there's more and more literature coming out of cardiovascular complications certainly and so probably the chances of PE are even higher and then you've got to put that into your kind of differential diagnosis and, and workup so I think like you say it's it's really important to consider those things and that leads me into another point which which you kind of mentioned um, and mentioned earlier around the um, availability of data that you have in hospital so, so like you say, you go to a sick person on the ward and you can look at their notes um, from admission, their previous hospital admissions, as well as their recent workup and x-rays and whatever else, and make a really evidence-based decision around that person's care. Whereas pre-hospitally, obviously, we don't have that information and we're limited to a snapshot of data that may doesn't it's not really representative of the trend of that person's kind of health or illness. And so, and so like you say, whilst... I think there's emphasis on trying to keep people at home where they're contagious and stable, which is appropriate. But I think there's also no shame in, in taking people in for assessment if there's anything of concern in your mind. Because like you say, these patients, and you'll see it, you, you'll have seen it far more than I have, but these patients um, can go from being quite well to deteriorating rapidly um, and needing critical care intervention. So I think certainly for for... The ambulance service where we don't have that data and our experience is, is certainly less than, for instance, outreach patients or ITU, um, having a, an awareness of our own limitations in the diagnoses and, and kind of risk stratification we can make pre-hospitally is, um, is really useful. And taking patients in for assessment is, again, nothing to be ashamed of. Um, I think it's appropriate given the amount of information that we can gain. Um, do you think? Yeah, definitely. I think it's um, certainly have a low threshold for these patients, especially any that are showing any kind of real respiratory compromise. They, as you mentioned, they really can deteriorate very rapidly. We can see one patient and then an hour later, they're completely in respiratory distress and, you know, requiring, you know, CPAP or possibly even intubation. So it's, it is quite rapid in some some of these patients and the the biggest uh, in my experience the, the one of the hardest things was was picking these patients it was it was terribly hard to pick these patients some patients would be on 15 liters for 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 days doing fine others would spend four hours and you know the and deteriorate from there it was very very hard to pick these patients in my experience 
Yeah, absolutely. And especially, you know, like we say, we're in the middle of a pandemic where all of our, you know, the, the medical community is still researching how, how these patients or kind of how the pathophysiology kind of works. So, so it's, you know, we're not going to have clear guidance on, on um, you know, when patients are going to deteriorate and, and when they won't. So, so yeah, kind of low threshold for concern. And I think also just, just to add into that, to have a low threshold for requesting an enhanced care team pre-hospitally um, for interventions like CPAP and more advanced ventilatory support. Um, because it's it's something that I think, certainly in my experience, which is, you know, it's, it's biased to the area I work in, but I think they're, they're difficult patients to identify on the uh, information that we receive on the CAD. And so the onus is really on the crews that see patients to recognise a sick respiratory patient and request support. Um, otherwise, you know, patients may go without that intervention when they when they may benefit from it. Um, so as always, a kind of low threshold for requesting uh, support would always be advocated. Um, I think I'd, I'd, I'd like to touch on actually, if that's okay, um, your experience of cardiac arrest management in hospital. Um, you kind of you mentioned it a bit before and. I think it'd be it's interesting you know I experienced a few um, during my time on placements and for me it was a completely different uh, experience to dealing with a cardiac arrest pre-hospitally um, so what are some of the differences in, in terms of your in-hospital and, and pre-hospital experience of cardiac arrests and um, yeah did you did you kind of get any lessons or anything that you've that you've put applied to your pre-hospital paramedic practice yeah it's <laughs> The in-hospital cardiac arrest, um, uh, I have to admit, it hurt my head when I first saw it. <laughs> it, it made me really scratch and just go, I, I don't like this. And I think that came from a place of where normally I would be, you know, the senior clinician or certainly close to the top senior clinician Um to one where now we're working alongside ICU registrars, A&E consultants, A&E registrars um, with, with great experience in that and also just a much larger team on site immediately. I appreciate, you know, cardiac arrest can get quite busy um, pre-hospital as well, especially if we're looking at, you know, traumatic arrests when, you know, hearts start turning up and hems and everything and a lot of people can turn up. But in hospital, a lot of people are available for every rest every time. And my... Getting my head around that was was certainly unique, and just trying to um, build up my response and appreciate a couple of points that these um, in hospital they kind of rapidly move through BLS, ILS, ALS relatively quickly, and just trying to from my pre-hospital practice trying to slow that down a little bit uh, from my own thinking, but also focusing on the basics that we know do well for these patients, but also accepting the fact that we do have a lot of people with a lot of experience. So multiple interventions can be done at one time. Um, from pre-hospital practice to hospital, uh, probably the two things that I brought in was um, we started uh, doing a um, cardiac arrest huddle with our medical emergency team, cardiac arrest team, and that was just allocating roles in the morning to ensure we know kind of what we're doing so the basics aren't missed um, and who's going to be leading for that um, that day on the wards. And then also I feel that one of the biggest things I, I brought in was the um, willingness to use IO. Um, oh, yeah? Hospital, in hospital, they feel the lots of experienced clinicians and lots of people want to have a go at IV access. Um, so I felt sometimes maybe there was a bit of a 
So that's a ego thing, but just kind of like, yeah, I can do this. Um, you know, I, I'm the IV expert and I think we missed um, some times where we, we can just, let's get the IO, let's let's pop that in first and we can work on IV access later. Yeah, yeah. I kind of um, brought that in and that's, I felt, I felt in my time there that we certainly started using it at um, IO access a whole lot more and a whole lot more willingly, even at our non-cardiac arrests as well. Nice. And then pre-hospital side, um, what I've taken from the role is just, I don't I, not not a terrible lot has gotten because I felt in the pre-hospital world, I generally would have a chat with my crewmate and kind of our goals that we're going to be doing before we arrive on scene, what we need to do, or especially if it's going to be a large scene, how we divide and kind of meet up to ensure we've, we know who we're treating and what's kind of going to be our priorities until we can get a, additional crews. So I feel um, as a paramedic, you bring quite a lot of experience for the cardiac arrest, medical emergency side of things, just trying to bring organized to that chaos. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, um, so one of the things you mentioned about communication and, and team roles is, is so important. And it's something for me that's been highlighted with our um, changing approach to PPE around cardiac arrest. And, and so often I go to um, cardiac arrest, out of hospital cardiac arrests now, where everyone's wearing a white suit and a mask and you don't know who anyone is, um, let alone what their roles are because you can't see their epaulets. And because we're English, we don't like to ask who people are in case we know them and then it comes across as insulting and then all these different kind of um, complexities. So I found um, arriving at a scene and, and often I'm there kind of later than other crews, um, just taking a moment to really clarify who people are, what their clinical role is and um, assign, you know, each of us have our assigned kind of work streams is is really beneficial in um making sure the management is stays on a kind of tight course and i think it helps with another point you mentioned about bls and and advanced interventions and i think you know i would agree with what you were saying about um the importance of establishing good basic life support um, because we know that's that's what the evidence supports and most patients are resuscitated from good quality basic life support um and I guess alongside that, recognizing that if you have experience and um, I mean, it's mainly experience and exposure um, on scene, maybe you can establish concomitant workflow in, in terms of advanced intervention, and that is appropriate. But just always remembering that advanced interventions are not the goal. Um, good quality basic interventions to resuscitate someone as the goal and adding advanced interventions can be beneficial on top of that but but not in in lieu of it i think is an important point um so yeah so so certainly some interesting lessons <laughs> um how do you how do you feel kind of coming back to pre-hospital practice now that you've you've finished your in-hospital role um so yeah it's been quite good to to kind of um move and see some pre-hospital work again as is obviously during the pandemic, I wasn't doing any on-road shifts and coming back out into um, the pre-hospital world has been great to do. It does uh, change your thinking um, in terms of you are just with you and your crewmate. So it's a little bit limited in how you bounce off ideas and that um, you don't have that senior support just, you know, very rapidly available to you. Um it's good to be able to drive around rather than stuck inside kind of four walls. <laughs> yeah. um, it's nice to be out in the community, uh, but it's, I, I think it's a, it's a good kind of mix to have um, both roles um, kind of under my belts. And there's things I miss about in hospital um, as well. Um, the, 
the roles are, are, are quite shared in some ways, but unique in others. So it is it is great to have both. And I think um, as paramedics advance over here, I think it'll become you know more common that we see paramedics in hospitals, you know, like the A ACCP roles within ITUs or ACP roles within A and E's and that as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, nice one. And so I understand you're going back to Australia soon. Um, yeah, the plan is to um, go back to Oz uh, with my wife. Uh, we've had a, a, a great time over here, just going back home for some family support and that. Yeah, nice. I was going to say, you seem to have done a bit of everything whilst you're over here. So hopefully taking some experience back to, to Australia. Um, any plans for what you're going to do once you're back there? Yeah, it's... Um... I'm not, I'm not 100% sure at the moment, actually. I, I can't make up my mind. I go through a 1,001 different um, kind of career progressions every day. I'm not surprised, given your background. <laughs> it's, um, it's quite unique. I think I'll probably um, look at um, hospital roles when I go back in just to keep a, a work kind of life balance. But yeah. then um, I worked for a, a private ambulance before I moved over into the UK. Um, so I'd probably go back to them as well. Where they look after event paramedicine, mainly um, motorsport. So it'd be great to kind of get back into some motorsport um, uh, medicine because it's just that's a, some great exposure to kind of trauma and yeah, yeah. just in time for the things. Australian summer and motorbike season, I imagine. <laughs> Yeah, it's exactly right. And um, lots of interesting events that we cover. Um, probably one of the best ones is Summer Nats, which is held in Canberra. But obviously, I don't know how it will go with the, you know, the COVID restrictions and that. That was always a very unique and interesting event, seeing a very wide range of um, injuries and presentations. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Well, appreciate you coming on. Thanks for that, mate. Um, all the best with your travelling back and your whatever jobs you end up doing back over in Australia. Um, but yeah thanks for coming on uh, I think it's been really useful to chat and, um, and hear your experiences oh, thank you so much thanks for having me it's been great to kind of chat and yeah, hope the people who've got something out of it yeah no worries I'm sure they have thanks mate cheers hold up what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.